0: Good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you. It is so good to be back. I love to see all of the faces that I recognize, and uh, welcome to the ones that I don't. It's really good to be with you. Let's open in prayer and then dig into God's word together. God, I pray that you would be with us today. God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word together. Lord, that is a tremendous blessing. Pray we wouldn't take that for granted. Lord, I pray that you be with me. I pray that you would give me the words to say, the words that you desire me to say. Lord, help me in that. I also pray, God, that you would um, kill, God, any, any pride, God, that's inside any um, temptation um, that is so easy to, to fall into, um, wanting people to like me. Um, and instead, I pray um, through the opening of your word, God, that they would fall more and more in love with you. God, I pray desperately for that. I pray for each person here, God, I pray as they come and they listen to God's word, that they would be active, that their brains would be engaged, Lord, and that they would um, come differently, Lord, to church than they would as to go to the TV or to Netflix, God. Um, but they would come with an activeness, God, to to sift the word of God, to wrestle with the word of God, to listen to the Holy Spirit and understand how it applies to them. Lord, um, I pray this, that they wouldn't put all the pressure on me to give that perfect example that just hits them right in the heart, um, but that through the discernment, God, of your word, that your um, word, your Holy Spirit would penetrate their heart, because that's where real change happens. God, my words mean little. Um, Your conviction and moving means everything. And so we pray for that, God, in your name. Amen. We are continuing in um, the Rebuild series. I was giving the title Facing Fear in Nehemiah chapters 4 and 6. And so hopefully you had a chance to read those beforehand. Um, If not, I'm going to give you a quick summary and definitely turn there. Here's some Bibles flipping. Turn to Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6. We're going to be there the entire time. We're going to work our way through both of those texts because there's some pretty cool things that God um, has put on my heart that I want to share with you. This morning. Um, but first, I'll just give you the one minute summary for each. So, in chapter four, um, we've got these dudes, Sanballat and Tobiah, and they bring some ridicule. They bust out some bad jokes, um, and they're bringing it against the Israelites. Um, but the Israelites push through, and they join the wall that they are building to half of its height. And then Sanballat and Tobiah get some friends from other neighboring nations. And they start trying to intimidate Nehemiah um, and the Israelites by making them think that an attack could come against them at any time. And so Nehemiah stations armed groups of people around the wall at various points to show a resolve in defense and to be ready um, and to show them that they're ready for an attack. And then eventually they transition um, their strategy and they've got half the people guarding, half the people working with swords by their side. Next week, you guys, I think, are going to be in chapter 5, and we're skipping over to chapter 6. And at this point in chapter 6, the wall is um, built, but the gates aren't on the wall yet, and so the city and the people are still vulnerable. So the enemies of Israel devise a plan to trick Nehemiah to come out to them to meet, um, but it was an obvious trap, and so Nehemiah says, no dice, no dice. To that. So they come up with a new plan, and their new plan is to send a letter that's full of lies, and they know it's going to get into the rumor mill and spread around. And it's got a bunch of false claims against Nehemiah and the Jews, things saying that Nehemiah really wants to be the king, and that the Jews are trying to rebel and they're going to tell the king. Um, But Nehemiah doesn't bite on that either. The last thing that they try to do is um, they. Try, they hire this guy to tell Nehemiah that there's a plan to assassinate him and that he should go hide in the temple. And um, But he doesn't give in, and the wall is finished. And so that's the one-minute version of chapter 4 and chapter 6. I mean, before we get to facing fear, I just want you guys to consider this question. The question is this, why are these passages in the Bible. And I think this is always a good thing to do. It's a good habit to get into whenever you're studying the Word of God, because we know that the Bible was first and foremost written about God, not about us. We are secondary. God is primary. And so I don't want you to miss these things because we're going to spend a bunch of time today looking at some really good stuff and understanding a secondary truth that we can get from God's word. But the primary truth of this text and of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is not stuff for us, but it's stuff about God. I don't want you to miss that. And so we're going to circle back um, to that at the end when we do some application because I'm going to show you how that works. But just a few simple observations that I see when I consider our passages today. I see a God who is sovereign. I see a God whose plans will not be thwarted by humanity. I see a God who is faithful to his promises. I see a God who is loving and desiring um, to bring his people back to himself no matter how far they have fallen. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you recognize that a good chunk of the Old Testament is the Israelites just running away from God and it's book after book after book of the Lord saying, come back, come back, come back, and they don't. And so God says, "Then I've told you so many times, here comes the punishment. But the beauty in this is God doesn't leave them in that, but he has a desire that they would come back to him. And you're going to see in the text that he is with them even after all of that, and that is a beautiful thing. So I just wanted you to consider those things as we go forward. We're going to start uh, with the purpose of fear as we talk about facing fear. And let's first define what fear is. Because fear is a large category, right? Fear is a very large category. And there's many different types of fear. And I just want to start by saying and acknowledging um, that I recognize that some of you are dealing with very deep-rooted, complex fears um, that might need professional help. They're going to potentially need more than I'm just going to give you um, today. And so just know that I'm not looking to actually talk about that element of fear. and don't hear then when I'm talking about fear that I'm diminishing what you're going through, It's just like, oh just trust God and your fear will go away. I understand um, that there is sometimes a complexity to these things. Uh, we're going to discuss a different element of fear. And as we stated, there's many different categories because I believe that fear was actually originally given by God as something good. In the Bible, what does the Bible tell us over and over and over to do when it comes to fear? It tells us to fear God. It tells us to fear God. And I would argue um, that it actually does mean fear. It's a healthy fear, right? Um, but it, it's more than just this respect that sometimes people have argued for. I think there's very specific text you can point to. It's, Jesus says it. Jesus is like, fear. Fear God. And so there's a healthy fear that God has given to us that is right and is good. We can also see it in creation, right? The way that God created us there, God placed a fear inside of us that is actually very healthy and very good, right? That we have a desire to fear certain things and that helps us in self-preservation as humanity. And there are things that we rightly and justly fear. And so I think originally fear is actually a good thing. But as I was praying about this, um, God was just sort of showing me that just like so many other good things that God has given, what Satan does is he comes and he tries to twist fear, and he'll try to distort it from something that was good into something that is bad, right? He'll twist it. He'll, he'll ramp too much of it where it's unhealthy. He'll take it away to the point where you don't have enough. He'll stretch it, twist it, pull it, whatever he wants to do, whatever he can do to get you off of that balance of what God has called you to, and into something bad. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about that fear that God doesn't desire you to have. And so today, as we start, I'm going to give you the big punchline at the start of the sermon. We're going to almost preach backwards because I want you to be able to recognize as we go along what we're talking about, right? I want you to see what I'm going to say right here, both in the text and then also be able to apply it to your own life. And so here's the punchline here's what I want you to take away if you take away one thing today I think the goal of fear is to steal your joy and paralyze the work of God I think that's the joy that's the goal of fear is that it would paralyze the work of God and it would steal your joy And so we're going to go through this text and we're going to look at a bunch of different examples of how the enemy tries to bring fear into our lives. And the goal in us identifying this is so that we can fight it, so that we can build a defense against it, right? Because the first thing that you have to do when you've got an enemy is you have to identify the enemy and you have to identify his tactics. And when you understand what he's trying to do to you, then you can defend against it. And so that is our goal This morning, And so we're going to work through a number of these, and I'm just going to ask you whether or not you identify with these in your life. And I'm not expecting you to necessarily identify with all of them. Praise God if you don't. Um, And if you do, that's okay too. But I I want you to be honest as we work through these things and really wrestle with the text um, so that you can be honest um, if there are holes in your wall. The first one is this. The enemy tries to bring fear through harassment and ridicule. If you look in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. Now when it came about that Samballot had heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy people of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore the temple for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the heaps of rubble, even the burned ones? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox were to jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. So that was the fear. You can see how the Israelites respond. Um, A few verses down, we see that they were demoralized. They were demoralized because of this harassment and ridicule. And so my question to you is, do you identify with this particular thing in your life? Is this a way that the enemy can get into your life? Life. Let me give you one example just to sort of help kickstart your brain. Many Christians don't tell others about Christ. And I think that's a unfortunately quite a universally accepted statement. Why? At least in part, I think it's because we fear harassment and ridicule. Is that something that you identify with? Something that you would say the enemy has gotten you on. The next one is this, it's fear through isolation. If you jump a little bit farther down to verses 7 and 8, you'll see this. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites had heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going, toward, um, going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted to come together and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. That was their goal. And then this is Nehemiah talking a few verses later. What is the response again of the Israelites? When I saw... Their fear, the Israelites were once again afraid. And so I love this as a side note. Just look what he, he points them back to the Lord. Don't be afraid of them, remembers the Lord, who's great and awesome. But they were afraid. And um, in some ways, they had good reason to be afraid. Um, I don't know if you caught on to all those different names that they gave, but um, this is who they represented, right? So Samballot, remember, he was talking to the men of Samaria. He was from Samaria, Right. And so they were coming in from the north. They had surrounded them from the north. The east was Ammon. That was Tobiah. Remember, Tobiah was an Ammonite, right? From the south was the Arabs um, from Geshem. And then from the west was the Ashadites, right? Um, the Philistines. And so Jerusalem was surrounded, it was isolated, and they felt very alone. And so the question I have. Is this, is this something you identify with? Fear through isolation. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. I think this is one of the tactics of the enemy. Right? He wants you to feel alone. I can certainly feel this at times as a pastor. Right? There's times where I feel very, very lonely because I spend a tremendous amount of time trying to get, convince Christians that Christ is worth it. And that's lonely. That feels very, very lonely at times. And it's not actually true, right? That's the part where Satan's getting into, right? Because there are people who are following Christ. I am not alone, right? But you can see how easily Satan can take something that is a right and good thing, right? That desire that to see every Christian actually follow Christ with their life, and he takes it and turns it into something that can harm me. It's very subtle, it's very quick. And that's why I want to point these things out to you so you can see them. It's something that you can identify with. Another tactic that I think that Satan has used to great effectiveness in North America over the last decade, maybe specifically even these last couple of years, is in North America, we have, are purposely removing ourselves from the body. We're purposely removing ourselves from the church, both in frequency, right, how often we actually gather with the body of believers, right, called church, but also in the sense that God has commanded us to actually be the church. And sometimes we just show up and then we just go and we're never actually a part of the church as God has commanded us to in his word. And I'm here to tell you that Satan doesn't care if you're in church. He really doesn't. It's actually a great place for him to be. If you're just in church, but God's word never penetrates your heart, it never does anything, then Satan actually has you right where he wants you. And that's a, scary, that's a scary, scary place to be. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, what we are doing is literally insane. And let me tell you why. And I don't take that lightly. Do you know what the greatest disciplinary tool that the Lord gave the church? The greatest disciplinary tool that the Lord gave the church, this is like the, the last resort, the break glass in case of emergency, emergency, is that in a last case where there's sin in someone where there's rebellion, that they would remove that person from the body of believers. That's the last-ditch effort. And the goal of this, as set up by God, is that when this person is removed from the body, that it would be so horrible to be living in the world compared to being connected in the body that they would realize how awful it was and they would repent and come back to Christ and be reunited with the church. That's the goal of that. That's the last ditch Scenario And the implication of it the other way around is if they enjoyed being in the world and they didn't miss the church at all, that they weren't really a Christian. And yet in North America, we have done this to ourselves. We have purposely, by ourselves, removed ourselves from the church, whether it's how often we actually show up with the believers or how we actually are engaged in the body of believers when we can't be there. And we're killing ourselves. We're doing Satan's work for him. We are isolating ourselves when God never intended for it for us to be that way. Church, don't do that. And so thank you for being here. Thank you for being in God's word and I want to exhort you. Be actually a part of the church. Be the body. Don't just be here. Don't isolate yourself. The next one's fear through inadequacy. If you look at uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 10, and this is what it says And so in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubble, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. All this fear around them, the people were scared, right? They're wondering what the enemy is going to do. And then they look at themselves and they feel inadequate. And again, I want you to watch what Satan does because this is very interesting because it was true. They were inadequate for the task that God had given them. They were not going to be able to rebuild this wall in time before all those nations around them closed in and got them. They were inadequate. And notice how Satan, but all that he does is he shows them this partial truth, right? He'll show them this thing that's actually true. You're like, oh yeah, this is really true. I tested that. That is true. You're right. It is true but he doesn't show them the greater truth that overbalances, that comes and um, takes out that other truth, right? And that's that God is greater. That God called them to the work. That God promised that if they were faithful to him that they would succeed. But they got trapped by something that was actually true, but it wasn't balanced out by the greater truth. Don't fall in to that trap but you can see how it works and is this something that you can identify in yourself again I just asked you the question because I think in my church honestly I think I've seen this one more than anything else this fear through inadequacy right there's a lot of people in our church that have said to me Mark like I feel inadequate I don't think I can serve in children's ministry I don't think I can pray I can't pray out loud with other believers I can't study the word of God in any sort of depth, so I can't teach my kids. I can't teach my grandkids. I can't I can't I can't. I hear it all the time. Because I feel inadequate. Do you identify with this? Is this something that you're like, "Yeah, you know what? I identify. I sometimes there's times where I feel inadequate." Here's the next one, fear through personal attack. If you we're jumping over to chapter 6 now, so if you want to jump there, and go to verses 5 through 9. Emiah 6, 5 through 9. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same way a fifth time in an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it was reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. For this reason you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim it in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let's consult together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Nothing like these things that you are saying has been done, but you are inventing them of your own mind. Notice what they were trying to do. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged. And notice what happens to the work. In the work, it will not be done, but now God strengthen my hands. As you wrestle with this question, let me ask you this. I think this will help you as you wrestle. Do you have more fear about what God says about you or what others say about you? Do you fear more what God says about you or what others say about you? Your answer to that question will determine this. Here's our last one fear through lies. We are in Nehemiah 6, now 10 through 14. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let's meet together in the house of God within the temple and let's close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee and who is there like me who would go into the temple to save his own life? I will not go in. Then I realized that God certainly had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Simballot had hired him. He was hired for this very reason, notice, that I would become frightened and act accordingly and sin. So they might have an evil uh, so I might have an evil report in order that they could taunt me. Remember my God to buy and sin in accordance with these works of theirs and also Nodi the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. You can notice what they were trying to do once again to Nehemiah. Did you notice what the lie was? If you google uh, a temple layout um, you will see two things actually inside the temple. You will see the Holy of Holies, and you will see the holy place. Everything else is outside. So how do, you know, how do we know that they wanted him to go into at least the holy place? Because they wanted him to shut the doors of the temple. Nehemiah was not a priest, and so this act would have been a desecration to the house of God. It would have caused the people to question Nehemiah's reverence for God. And it would have allowed the possibility, as Nehemiah says, for God's wrath to land on him, totally destroying the work that God had given them to do. But he didn't give in. He didn't give in to the fear, to the lie that would have led to disobedience. And so which avenue of fear do you identify with the most? What do you struggle with? Uh, We're going to look at some of the antidotes that God has given us in his word to help us through these things. And I'm not going to give you entirely perfect answers, but I'm going to point you towards something. So here's the first slide. Um, This is the slide that made it into the hour version of the sermon and not the half hour version of the sermon. Um, So I'm not going to say a lot uh, about it, uh, but you can just see I, I line those up. So one matches up with one and you can see some of the things, some of the godly habits that God desires us to do that are going to help you shore up your defenses against these things that the enemies are trying to do. Okay, and I'll just point you quickly to a couple. If you notice the number one, I added the word distraction there because I think that's a lot of what harassment and ridicule are trying to do. They're trying to distract you. And distraction in today's age is one of Satan's greatest tools. It's one of the evil forces greatest tools, right? Satan is happy to take you and fix your eyes on anything but Christ. Even really good stuff, right? And God called us to do good things. We know we've been created to do good works, right? In Christ Jesus. But if you take your eyes off Christ, he's happy to have you focus on anything else. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on the mission and we'll jump to number five, just a the quick version of this. When we talk about the lies that lead to sin, um, the antidote is God's word, and here's why. A lot of the lies, I think, that lead to sin um, are similar to what Nehemiah faced, right? Because the goal of these lies is to get you to compromise even slightly under the guise of survival, just like Nehemiah faced. Oh, God won't care if I go into the temple just this once to save my life, right? God God called me. I'm supposed to be the leader. I'm supposed to do all this great work. If I'm dead, then that wouldn't happen. Wrong, right? It would have compromised what God had told them to do, and it was slight, and he's got good, good excuses that he can come up with for why it would be okay, and yet he knew that it was wrong, and he would not compromise. And I think Um, We just need to watch out for this, right? Because I can feel this in myself too. Um, Because I think it's fair to say that these last two years have been tiring for a lot of people. I don't know about you, I'm tired. I'm tired. It's been a hard couple of years. And so I think there's just a greater temptation in this area because I think a lot of us might say, you know what, I'm kind of in survival mode right now. I'm kind of in survival mode. And what I'm here to say is don't compromise the basics of your faith. Don't compromise prayer. Don't compromise reading God's word. Don't compromise living in Christian community, right, to actually be a part of the body. Don't compromise those things. Compromise swimming lessons. Compromise hockey. Compromise other stuff. Don't compromise those things. If that's all that you can do, do that. Don't compromise your faith. Because as Christians, if we do that, we're going to cut ourselves again off at the knees, right and we think we're surviving but we're really just on a path towards death we're really just on a path towards falling farther and farther away from the joy that God's called us to live in Christ so don't paralyze your ability to do the work that God's called you to or to paralyze your joy in those things the other thing and I promised you would circle back to this is the other way that you can guard against the enemy is by knowing God himself and so I'm gonna, we're going to work our way through these quickly because I think this is important because God's important. So the first one is this. It's that God is a seity. I mean, if you're not um, familiar with the word a C-A-D, it gives the idea that God is self-existing. He literally, it gives the idea that he literally is Existence. Right? And so we get the immutability of God, Right, the fact that he never changes, comes out of the fact that he's self-existent, so there's no opportunity for change. And so we get this from statements like in Exodus, where he, he calls himself the I Am. When he calls himself the I Am, he's basically saying, I am the self-existent one. That's what he's saying. And So that's where we get this concept out of. It. And you might say, Mark, what in the world does that have to do with um, harassment and ridicule? It's this. The focus of those things is change. They either want to beat you down and wear you down until you start to entertain the age-old question that Satan first posed in the garden of, did God really say? So that they can change your view of God or change your view of his word. Or the other thing that they want to do is they want to distract you so I put distraction in from the mission. They want to change, even just alter it slightly, your mission. And so the way to fight against that is to keep your eyes fixed on the God who literally is existence and who never changes. The second one is this, that God is imminent. This is a big fancy way of saying that, referring to God's indwelling presence in the universe which is basically a big fancy way of saying that he is both near and knowable. God is both near and knowable. And you can see how that relates, number two, with isolation. Right? Because you were not created to be alone. And God has no, no intention of leaving you alone if you're walking in obedience to him. Right. So you can take comfort in this fact that God has no desire to leave you because he's imminent. He doesn't just hang out up in heaven and doesn't care about what's going on down here. He wants to be with you. And that's a beautiful thing. And then one of the best ways to remember that fact is to do what we just talked about and to not only be at church, but to be the church. That's how we get reminded of that. And you can see how it all fits together. Number three, talking about inadequacy, is that God is perfection. What inadequacy tells us is really a lie. This is the lie. It says that God can't do what he said he is going to do. And then therefore we feel inadequate. Or it's like we talked about before, where it's the lie that draws our attention to a partial truth, something that's actually true, like we are inadequate. um, But it forgets to talk about the fact that God is greater and will overcome. and He's promised us in that. And in the English, um, this this word perfection, it, it means to be... Flawless, right? It means um, to be excellent. But Hebrew, um, in the Hebrew, it sort of gives a better understanding of what the Bible is trying to get across here. And in the Hebrew, it means to be um, complete, to be blameless or without blemish. And as Christians, God wants to move you towards completion. And part of that moving towards completion is what it's going to mean is He's going to ask you to do things that, yes, you are inadequate to do on your own, but He's with you. And that's going to help you move towards completion. And so I'll give you a quick example of this. One of the things that we said earlier is that sometimes people, we can acknowledge this, we have a hard time studying the Bible in depth. We feel like it's not for everyone, right? And um, there's a, one of my dear friends at our church, his name's Don. He's our um, janitor. He's 65. Um, he's, just, he's a good, hardworking man. And he'd tell me, Mark, you know what? All my life I hated learning. I hated school, I I wasn't good at it, none of that stuff, didn't like it at all. And three or four years ago, God gave Don this just intense desire to know him, because he prayed for it. And when he prayed for it, he started to be able to read like crazy. And he started reading God's word, and he started reading other books. And now Don and I are reading a big, fat, systematic theology together. And it's beautiful and it's fantastic. And he doesn't even like reading in most other areas of life, but he loves learning more about Christ. And it's such a beautiful picture because it, it's, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that he just loves, uh, and it's God that's doing it, right? And it's because he loves it, he just knows it's God, right? And so I just want to encourage you with that story that I truly believe Right. No matter how you feel or what your background is or what your education level is or whatever it is, if you want to know God more, start praying for that. And I believe he will give you that help that you need. And it's not always going to happen overnight, but God will do that because God is greater. And I don't think he's called us to any of these biblical basics, only for most of us not to be able to do them. We need to trust God in those things. And number four, compared to personal attack is God is your creator, right? Because when we're attacked personally, it hurts, right? Because others think falsely of us, and we don't like that. We don't like that others think falsely of us. But God as our creator knows exactly who we are, and we need to be secure in that, right? So it's not to say you don't want to correct things so that people think falsely of you, but we are not scared, right? We don't fear if that stuff happens, Right? Because I know that even if that person won't change their mind about who I am, that Christ knows who I am, and that is more important. That's how God as our creator helps us to overcome that fear. And the last one is that God is truth. Right? We, we know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And none of that was hyperbolic. He literally is the way, he literally is truth, and he literally is life. Right? And God wants you to know that truth. Right? Because the way to sin is that's what's the way that leads to death. But truth is the way to life, and God wants you to have life, but He knows the only way you're going to have life is if you have life in Him, because He is life, and he knows everything else isn't life. And this is true both of your eternal destination, but it's also true of your life in Christ right now. right? Sin in our relationship with God robs us of the joy that God wants us to experience in obedience to him. Take a quick look at the promises of God. You looked at this um, in chapter 1 probably a few weeks ago, Um, but I think this is kind of where the whole thing started, right? We're not going to read it all for sake of time, but just look at it. There it is. It's Nehemiah remembering the promises of God. And I don't know if you've ever wondered why Nehemiah kept going through all this fear, through all the different trials that he faced. But I believe there's really three answers. We looked at the first one. I believe that because he knew God himself, right? Because the knowledge of God provides that antidote because God is greater than the fear. Right, in every situation like we looked at. Number two, he trusted in God's promises. And then number three, he prayed. And we'll look at that in a second to close. And you might be saying, Mark, what do promises have to do with fear? Here's what promises have to do with fear. When you know the ending, you don't need to be afraid. When you know the ending, you don't need to be afraid. Uh, my little daughter Marlo, she's three. She loves Frozen. Um, she, she knows all the Frozen songs, um, but she cannot make it through that movie without crying every single time. Every time that snow monster comes out, and tries to get Anna. She is terrified and leaves the room, and she's out, right? And as parents, we can smile and also think it's quite ridiculous, right? Because we're trying to tell her, hey, Marlo, it's okay. You don't have to cry. We've watched this movie so many times, and you know the ending. You know that they're gonna be okay. And yet she continues to cry. And so as adults, right, we're like, oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. Why is the three-year-old crying, right? But I think so often... In our own Christian lives, we are like Marlowe. We know the ending. And yet, so often we are afraid. And I think this is true both of the meta-narrative of the universe, right? We know that we know the real ending to the universe, right? And that should bring us tremendous why we don't have to fear that. But I also think it's true in our everyday lives in God's Word. So let me give you an example. For example, we know that God promised that if we steward our money according to his plan, the way that he has laid things out, that we will have a greater joy. He's not necessarily promising us more money, but he's promising us joy in obedience to him, knowing that the way that he has laid out for us to live our lives is best. And yet so often, we get FOMO. We start fearing that we are missing out on what the world says is greater. And so we give in to that instead of following God. And so just like that, we have given in to fear because we fear that God wasn't right and the world knows better. Here's the last one, prayer. Again, for the sake of time, we won't read all these, but I just want to show them to you. And I'm sure you've seen this lots in others um, as you're leading up to Nehemiah. Look at all the different times that Nehemiah is either praying or he's having prayer answered. That's the basic pattern of the text. The enemy does something to cause fear, right? Then the Israelites say, acknowledge the fear and say, yeah, we're afraid. And then Nehemiah prays. That's That's the cyclical pattern of this text. And I just want to show you this last one because I love it. Because right, this is the best kind of answered prayer, is it not? When all, the, when all of our enemies heard about it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they realized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Is that not incredible? That's a prayer that I pray all the time. I pray, God, I pray that there, you would do something so amazing that I, we couldn't take credit if we tried. Right? And isn't this fantastic? When it's not just the Christians that know that God was in it, but everybody knows that God was in it. That's incredible. They, did you know, they lost their confidence for they realized what God was doing. That's what we, we want to see. And so when we think about prayer and how does it combat fear, and um, for sake of time, we're just going to keep it really simple. And we'll just look at three. It's this. Prayer combats fear in three ways. It takes our eyes off of ourselves. It takes our eyes off of others and it puts our eyes on Christ. When we pray, that's what it does. And I think those are, and obviously this is a simplistic version of this, but I think those are the three um, core things when we talk about fear that are the problem. Our eyes are too much on ourselves, our eyes are too much on others, or our eyes are not enough on Christ. And so what is fear created I and mean, created in you? It's keeping you from doing what God has called you to do. Brothers and sisters, don't let fear steal your joy or paralyze the work that God intends for you to do. Because God will continue to build his kingdom, right? But it's you who will miss out on the opportunity to be a part of it. If at any of these points Nehemiah failed, do you think that God would have just given up? And be like, oh, oh, no. I guess that was my best shot. Nehemiah was my best shot. I can't do anything now. No. God would have continued to build, to hold fast to his promises. But it's Nehemiah who would have missed out on doing what God had both created and called him to do. And that would have been horrible for Nehemiah and for the other people that were alongside him in that work. So don't miss out on what God is calling you to do because of fear I'll invite the music team up and then I'll come back and close in prayer. And Lord God I pray that if there are places where and we all have this God places where the enemy has broken through the wall and induced this fear God in our lives Lord I pray that we would work start right now to drive the enemy out not alone together with other believers and repair that wall. God, that we would be able to experience the joy that you have designed for us to experience in Christ and that we would not paralyze the work that you want to do, but we would get to experience how amazing it is to be a part, God, of the work that you have created and called us to do. We thank you for yourself. Lord, we thank you for your aseity. We thank you for your immutability. We thank you for your perfection. God, we thank you that you are our creator. Lord, we thank you that you are truth. God, there are so many things about you. God, and I just pray that our eyes would be fixed on you. God, that we would remember these truths, understand these truths of who you are and use them Lord, to fight against the enemy that our eyes would be fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, help us. We all need help. None of us are perfect. We all struggle with this, so help us to be honest, um, but help us to um, not give in to discouragement, but instead to stand up and fight together as Nehemiah and the Israelites did in order to accomplish the work that you had promised. We thank you for that in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for the privilege of being with you. You are dismissed.